0: dot com slash lawless terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed
1: hello sunshine i'm alexi lawless and welcome to the state of the union podcast where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red white and blue colored glasses this week we'll be talking about the champions league final it is done and dusted but so much to talk about we will be talking about world cup qualifying for the u.s men's national team a little more information about that we'll be talking about nwsl and the potential exodus of uh, players. We'll be talking about El Trafico, another Trafico, El Trafico come and gone. We'll be talking about Ted Lasso and so much more. But first joining me as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this Monday, August 24th in the year 2020? I am doing well after a busy weekend of covering MLS. Yes, we were back in the saddle. Uh, MLS is back again, again, uh, whatever we're, ta- we're calling it here. Obviously, the bubble down there in Orlando is done. We're back with uh, games coming basically every single day. And certainly from a Fox perspective, we're televising them on Big Fox. We, uh, we had the El Trafico on Big Fox on Saturday. And then we had, uh, uh, wasn't the Cascadia uh, cup, but it still was Seattle, Portland on Sunday. So it's good to be back at work. It's good to be back in the studio to see uh, you and so many people in front, uh, and behind the camera that, that do that work. Uh, what else did you do Mossy this week? Uh, did you tune into anything interesting when it comes to your viewing
2: habits? Uh, big update on the television front. Okay. I am often running on Deadwood.
1: Okay. Uh, you have been fact, talking about this for a while, right? You were talking about this for a while, but now you finally have broken the seal.
2: Yeah, Deadwood, for people who don't know, is it's a show that uh, aired on HBO in the mid 2000s that was at the time considered part of the HBO Holy Trinity along with The Sopranos and The Wire. It's slipped from the consciousness somewhat uh, in recent years but it's always been a big hole in my television watching resume that I wanted to rectify at some point. So I've decided to do it now. Uh, I started uh, this past week, I'm already in the middle of season two, uh, cranking away. It's three seasons. And then there was a movie they did afterwards, many years later, in fact, which kind of picked up where the TV show left off and brought closure to the stories. So uh, I will uh, watch the three seasons and then right afterwards, watch the movie. And uh, so that will be that. I think my wife
1: was talking about that the other day. So maybe both of you just by coincidence are are off on the Deadwood uh, train. So, and everybody's trying to find some different things. So I'm glad you've started that. Let me know how that goes. Mossy, this past uh, week, I broke and violated my code. Uh, As you know, and those that listen and watch know, my hard and fast rule when it comes to television watching is I will not watch something until it is complete in that the entire series is started and finished so that I can binge it from start to finish. I broke my rule. It was not intentional because I thought that the new series on Apple TV, uh, the Ted Lasso series, uh, that, that for those that don't know, we talked a little bit about it last week. I thought that it was started and finished. I thought it was complete. I thought they were just dumping the whole thing on us and then you could binge it. And by the time I got going on it, then I realized that that was not the case. And so now they got me. Now they got me, and I'm hooked. And I have to say, it's wonderful. I I was I was worried. I was apprehensive, as you know, as to be expected from a. It's a soccer parody uh, comedy. Jason Sudeikis reprises his what would have been a a promo role for NBC. Uh, making fun of anything and everything when it comes on and off the field to the soccer game, uh, I, I was worried that it was going to be laughing at us as opposed to with us when it come when it came to American soccer, American soccer people, and soccer in general. Uh, I can let you know that even four episodes in, it is not what I expected, and that that is a good thing. It has a heart. It is an equal opportunity offender. <laughs> it takes shots at anybody and everybody out there. Uh, so that insecurity is shared by, ev- uh, by everybody. But it's just very, very different than I thought it was going to be. And that's, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's nice to see. But now I'm hooked, because it's not over. And now I got to wait for every new episode to come out. Like, what I had guarded against for so long has now taken a hold in me. And it's my own fault. And I hate myself for it. But I love that at least I found something that is, is very, very good.
2: Uh, one more thing you have to look forward to. Uh, I believe dropping next week on Amazon Prime will be the Tottenham All or Nothing uh, documentary chronicling this past Tottenham Hotspur season, which of course included the sacking of Mauricio Pochettino and the arrival of Jose Mourinho. And they've announced that one of my favorite actors, Tom Hardy will be narrating the uh, series. I'm hoping he does it in his Alfie Solomon's voice uh, that's a little Peaky Blinders reference. I'm not <laughs> sure if you're uh, familiar with that show, but uh, so I'm I am looking forward to that. I mean, they they've really gotten lucky in some of the seasons they've chosen to depict. I mean, they choose that that Leeds United season and you get all that craziness with Bielsa with the Spygate, and here they choose Tottenham and you get uh, the Pochettino sacking and Mourinho rivals. So this one should be very compelling as well. Now that that starts when. Uh, I believe I've, the date I've seen is August 31st. It's going to drop on okay, but Amazon Prime. Soon, but soon 5, here which it's be- coming.
1: All right, I'm, I'm in for that. I'd love to see that. Uh, you know, anything with... The great one uh, is going to be interesting at the very least. All right. uh, Enough about our viewing habits. Uh, we got plenty to talk about this week. So much happening on and off the uh, field out there. Ready to light this candle, Mossy? Yep. All right. uh, We're going to get right into it. And we're going to start out with uh, the Champions League. (laughs) The the strangest and certainly longest Champions League season uh, ever gone into the 400 plus days. It's gone so long that it actually the next season of Champions League has already begun, even though yesterday, as we record this on a Monday, the final of what I guess we're calling the 2019-2020 Champions League season is is finished. Congratulations to uh, Bayern Munich. Uh, for a lot of us, uh, including you and I, Mossy, who have... Uh, who've been working Bundesliga over the last few years uh, and have seen what Bayern Munich is. And at times what Bayern Munich isn't this uh, you know, this confirms a lot of our beliefs. And we talked a lot about this even back when we were doing the Bundesliga, you know, back in the back last fall about what they can do and coaching changes, but obvious talent and individual talent. Hansi Flick deserves a tremendous amount of credit for coming in and you know, doing the things and pressing the buttons in order to get this team on course. And you have to say, by the time they showed up yesterday on the field, this was as well an oiled machine when it comes to, to soccer as we have seen in a long time. I think even even going into the game, uh, I think that they were favored. Not I think, I know that they were favored. I believed that they were a better team than PSG. I think that they were, as I said, a much much high, more highly functional type of team, individually and collectively, physically and mentally. I think that they were stronger than the opponent. And while it didn't necessarily show in the scoreline, this should not necessarily be a surprise to anyone that when all is said and done, here Bayern Munich are uh, are holding the uh, the trophy. Uh, initial thoughts uh, on the game and obviously on Bayern Munich uh, being champions this year. Uh,
2: Bayern was the better team. Bayern is the better team. But I do think PSG will look back at this final with some real regrets. This was a very winnable game. They played uh, about as well defensively as they could have hoped for. They did what they had to do on that end. And they created enough chances at the other end, particularly in the first half, that they'll feel like this definitely could have gone the other way. Uh, They needed their two big stars, Neymar and Mbappe, to deliver, and neither one of them did. Uh, They both had lousy games, and I think that's what ultimately cost them.
1: Yes. Uh, The Neymar thing, we should definitely get into that. Uh, We had been extolling his virtues after his recent performances and kind of being reminded um, or reintroduced for some people as to what an incredible talent he was. He had a, a couple opportunities, but a very quiet performance. And ultimately, I think it has to be said, a disappointing performance in what also has to be said is and was the biggest game in PSG history, question mark? Not question mark, it, it's gotta be. I mean, this was what this team was built to do. And I know it's an anomaly type of year and a very strange and challenging type of year, but still they got to the summit. They got to what their goal has been. And in that big moment, I don't wanna say Neymar let them down, but he, he, he didn't show, show up and they weren't. And I, I said before that, that this is a highly functioning team. Bayern Munich, I got the feeling, it's not that they don't have stars. Absolutely, they have stars. But I got the feeling that they, more so than anybody out there, are able to distribute the responsibility in games in a way that others aren't. And PSG was much more about the individual and waiting for those individual magical moments. I mean, look, Robert Lewandowski didn't score in this final. Uh, And that in and of itself is, is strange. And yet, everybody did their job. And there was always a feeling when you're watching Bayern Munich that somebody is going to figure it out. And that, that shared type of responsibility is ultimately, I guess, what the definition of a good, uh, of a good team is. When you, when you look at this Bayern Munich team here, Mossy, and I know it's hard not to be, you know, have the, the lens of 2020 informing a lot of it, how good are they in, in the pantheon out there of, of great teams?
2: Well, I think they end, end the season looking like one of the uh, great teams in recent history. Uh, but you know, I, I talked about this a little bit uh, last week and it's worth revisiting. Uh, Bayern are a very smart club, uh, there's no denying that, but there is this air of like, oh, everything is so well thought out with them. Uh, when in fact, I think the story here is how many uh, of their original plans went haywire here and how many things didn't go according to plan and their ability to adjust on the fly Let's remember, they sacked a manager this season in Niko Kovac uh, after a 5-1 defeat to Frankfurt. They bring in Hansi Flick. And even after Hansi Flick took charge, they lost back-to-back Bundesliga games to Leverkusen and Gladbach in late November, early December, through 14 rounds in the Bundesliga. and They sat in seventh place. And at that point, uh, heading into the winter break, the expectation from everybody was that Hansi Flick was just an interim guy. And of course, they were gonna bring in somebody else maybe as early as the winter, Pochettino, somebody like that. Or uh, ironically enough, there was a lot of talk that they might keep Hansi Flick until the end of the season only because they were uh, waiting on Thomas Tuchel. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was their dream choice. And so they they were going to have to wait for him until the end of the season and then convince him to leave PSG. And they didn't make Hansi Flick the permanent manager until April. Uh, and even on the field, uh, I saw a lot of stuff the last couple days about how look at how much Bayern's 11 costs versus uh, how much PSG's cost. You know, the the implication being that Bayern spend their money so efficiently. But, you know, they did have an 80 million euro defender, their club record signing Lucas Hernandez sitting on the bench for this game. Uh, Didn't get in at all. Uh, Benjamin Pavard, another big signing, got injured. And so uh, Kimmich, who was supposed to be exclusively a midfielder uh, this season, ended up starting their biggest games at right back. Alfonso Davies, Who's, who could have seen that coming him moving to left back Alaba moving to the center of defense Jerome Boateng a guy they've been looking to kick out the door the last couple of years who was kind of a punchline on some of our Bundesliga shows early on the season he ends up starting their biggest games he of course gets injured in this one and then Nicolas Sula a guy who's been out for months <laughs> who's, who's uh, been injured all this time and who would have been out for the season by the way if not for the pandemic that gave him enough time to get back he ends up having to come on and so it was a lot of sort of adjusting on the fly uh, even the Coutinho thing you know we covered the Bundesliga and early on this season it was all about Coutinho and Thomas Muller was on the bench and Coutinho was going to be the difference maker and 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 then that ends up not working out so Thomas Muller comes in and ends up having this incredible season all these assists and so a lot of this stuff was them sort of making it up on the fly and not really going according to the original plan
1: yeah I mean look I want I want to be very very clear these are both very fancy and expensive machine machines I'm just saying that you know of the two Bayern Munich is the more well, uh, well-oiled machine. Now you mentioned a couple things there, and and I was thinking about this the other day. You know, had PSG won, or even even in the in the current context with Bayern Munich winning, is, is there something missing? Is it diluted because of 2020? Are there those either publicly or maybe more, more, I guess more privately, <laughs> are saying? Yeah, but. And this is, you know, that whole asterisk caveat type of situation for a lot of things that are happening in in 2020. I guess the question is, had it been a normal Champions League, do you still think that Bayern Munich would have done this? In a certain way, did they benefit from the pandemic and because of
2: this unique aspect of it? Or... Is this just as valid as any other? I think Bayern winning it actually lends legitimacy to the Champions League title this season because it is a team that we all were starting to think uh, was the best team anyway and would have won it regardless. Mm-hmm. Had somebody come out of nowhere and won it uh, under this scenario, we all would have looked at it and said, well, wait a minute. I think they just benefited from you know this, these unusual circumstances. Uh, but I think Bayern winning it, n- everybody comes out of this feeling like the right team won and, and the team that there's a great chance would have won it under normal circumstances they ended up winning it anyway. So I definitely think they sort of add some legitimacy to the whole thing.
1: Yeah. Some of the crazy scenes, whether it was the, the watch party back in uh, in Paris or uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, the, <laughs> the celebration when PSG lost, even by people in Lyon or I don't know where they, where they were, Marseille. But- they Marseille. Really <laughs> <incorporated>. <laughs> it was, it was something to behold.
2: Well, Marseille, they won uh, the first uh, edition of the Champions League in 92-93. They beat AC Milan in the final in Munich. And they're the only French team to win it. And so even as PSG has become this monolith in the last decade and dominated domestically, that's still something they can hold over them, that we've won the Champions League and you haven't. And so that was a big topic the last few days. Marseille uh, fans concerned that they were going to lose that. And so there was tremendous relief when Bayern won this game and they are still able to hold that over PSG Uh, but yeah I mean there's so many things to talk about with this game we we should hit I mean you've mentioned Robert Lewandowski Mm -hmm. Uh, there's now this petition online to bring the Ballon d'Or back because everybody feels like he's the guy that's the most victimized by, by them not handing out that award uh, this year. And I, I agree. I think he, he'd, he'd be a shoe in for it. He is probably going to win the FIFA player of the year award. So he'll have something from an individual standpoint to take out of this year, but uh, it would be nice. Cause I, I, on record as saying, I thought it was a ridiculous decision to scrap the Ballon on this year. I do hope they, they heed the calls to, to bring it back. And so Robert Lewandowski is able to be recognized in that way because you agree he, he should win it. Right.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely, he should win it, and and I do agree with you that it was ridiculous to get rid of it. I look, I know, I know this is a strange year, but I also I put put value and I respect those teams or those individual players that have been able to be flexible, that have been able to adapt and adopt to this new normal. I think that in and of itself is in, is of in is of incredible value and should be celebrated, and should be rewarded in the form of, of, best, of best players, your, your ability to adjust. You know, some other things uh, that, that jumped out on me. Manuel Neuer, there was a time not so long ago, a few years ago, uh, when, you know, he got injured, things weren't going well for him from a national team perspective, where we were saying that it's lost its luster, and that what was once the great uh, goalkeeper of the world was no more. And and yet he has come back, and look, he's always been a great goalkeeper, but he's come back. And once again, the, the way that Bayern Munich plays requires him, maybe only once a game, but at some point in a game, to make a big save because they are vulnerable. And look, they put all their cards on the table, Bayern Munich. This is how we're going to play. We're not going to change. We know that we're vulnerable over the top. We know that there's going to be space. We also know that we have... a a goalkeeper who can make the traditional saves, can make the untraditional saves and plays in a way that enables us to take that risk. But with that inherent risk comes those opportunities. And yet time and time again, he was was up to the task. So I think he's back in the conversation as one of the greats uh, in the world at this time. He certainly has been in the past at this time. And even more so in terms of his legacy, he fundamentally over the years has changed the way we think about uh, that position. Uh, I'll get your comments in a second then, but, and then, uh, you know, I want to, uh, I want to talk a little bit about Alfonso Davies and finish up this conversation when it comes to uh, Bayern Munich, but Manuel Neuer, anything on that?
2: I agree with you. Uh, he is my favorite goalkeeper of all time, but. Ooh, really? I
1: was one of, those... of all time.
2: Yeah. yeah I, 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 but I'm, I'm one of those people that's been denigrating him uh, the last couple of years. In fact, I, I said very recently in this podcast that Ter Stegen had usurped him as Germany's best uh, uh, goalkeeper. And not the first time I look ridiculous uh, for something I've said on this podcast, and it won't be the last. But yeah, Manuel Nori made a mockery of those suggestions in the last couple of weeks. You're right. He was phenomenal. He was great in this final the save on Neymar in the first half, the one on Marquinhos uh, in the second half. Uh, so yeah, no, I mean, plaudits to him as well.
1: All right, so the, the what do they get for their efforts when you're a PSG? Well, you start the, the league season a week from now, so uh, no rest for them. And obviously, they took a break, unlike the other uh, leagues out there, but they got to turn it back around. And then, you know, the changes come almost immediately to some People are talking about Thiago. I mean, theoretically, a player could leave Bayern Munich and next week play in the in the the charity shields match or, or something like that. I mean, there, there's all sorts of craziness when it, what's time anymore in 2020, right? It, it mean, it means nothing, but it also means some very strange things could happen. Right, Masi?
2: Yeah. I mean, you're reading stories today that Tuchel uh, is uh, under threat of being fired, but I, I just think the nature of this and the way one season is blending right into the next makes that very difficult. I think even if they're not crazy with him at PSG, you kind of have to live with him for another season he did get to a champions league final after all and as you mentioned they have a league game next week the champions league group stage starts up again in october and it would just be very weird circumstances to bring in a new manager now so uh, i don't see that tuchel change happening at all although i will say they have to sort out this mauro icardi issue because this was a very weird Uh, situation. Icardi is somebody that Leonardo is very high on, and it was his decision to bring him uh, on this season on loan with an option to buy permanently. Uh, Tuchel, you got the sense, wasn't that into it. Uh, And they ended up making the deal permanent for a lot of money. It's 50 million euros, but with bonuses that are going to take it to 60 million. While Tuchel, it seemed like one of them to re-sign Cavani instead. And the whole Icardi-Cavani dynamic was so mishandled this season that when the season ended, Cavani said, the heck with it, I'm gone. He did not sign an extension so he could play in the Champions League like Thiago Silva did, which enabled Thiago Silva to play in these games. And boy, that proved costly because they wouldn't have minded having somebody like Cavani to throw on in that game. And they did have Icardi on the bench, but he's slipped so far down Tuchel's pecking order that he brought on Chupa moting instead of Icardi. So now spinning it ahead to next season, I don't know what that, where that leaves Tuchel and Icardi. If in the biggest game of the season, he's bringing on Chupa moting instead of a, a striker they just spent 60 million euros on. So, you know, it just shows they're not all on the same page there. The other guy, by the way, that PSG paid a heavy price for not being able to retain for these games is Thomas Mounier, who was their starting right back all season. A pretty good player. Uh, His contract ran out at the end of the normal season. And he went off and signed with Dortmund. And there's some conflicting stories there. He claims that PSG never approached them about signing an extension. PSG claimed they did, and he didn't want to. uh, But they ended up having to start Tilo Carrera right back, who's really more of a center back. And boy, uh, his his, uh, lack of technical ability really showed there. I mean, he gave them nothing attacking-wise down that right wing, really screwed up some good moves, and actually wasn't even that solid defensively in this game. I mean, uh, Kingsley Coman ate him alive uh, and, you know, probably should have had a penalty late in the first half after he blew past him. And then he, and then Tilo Kerr lost Coman on the header. So uh, yeah, Tilo Carrera to me was a real weak link in that PSG back line. And you, and you keep thinking about, boy, their inability to uh, convince Thomas Munea to stick around for these games. was uh...
1: Well, I suppose if you're looking at paying a price, Kingsley Coman, uh, if you're PSG, if you're looking for paying a price over the years, given where he started,
2: that's where I was gonna go next, yeah. PSG have a sneaky good use system, uh, but of course they never use any of these guys because the model there is to buy you know, expensive uh, players. Uh, and so these guys end up leaving and going elsewhere in search of playing time. And they 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 came up against one of their youth products in the semifinals. And Christopher Nkunku, a player who had a terrific season with Leipzig, was one of the Bundesliga leaders in assists. So they could have gotten burned there. They didn't. They were able to shut down Nkunku and win that game. But they get burned here with Kingsley Coman, Musa Dembele, another PSG youth product, scored two goals for Lyon in their win over Manchester City. Uh, you know, Musa Diaby, a pretty good player uh, from PSG youth system, had a good season with Leverkusen. So you find these PSG <laughs> youth products kind of. Scatter all over Europe because they're certainly not getting any playing time with PSG, and so that's what the path they end up having to take. And for a guy like Kingsley Coman, obviously it, it's worked out great. And yeah, there is some poetic justice here that he ends up scoring the winner in this final.
1: All right, well, let's finish it off here. Uh, speaking of, of, of young players, although not from uh, necessarily their uh, youth system, uh, Alfonso Davies. Congratulations to Alfonso Davies uh, for being the first Canadian to win a Champions League uh, at the ripe old age of 19 years old. Uh, We all know the, well, I don't know if we all know the incredible story, but, uh, you know, he had uh, Liberian parents that fled the country. He was born in a uh, Ghanaian refugee camp, uh, and then uh, uh, he and his family migrated to, uh, to Canada growing up in Edmonton. And, you know, only a few years ago was... Playing in the youth system for the Vancouver Whitecaps, then start uh, with uh, in MLS with the Whitecaps, and then over the last year, his life has forever changed because of what has happened at Bayern Munich. And when all is said and done, here at the end, he is in rarefied air. And you know, I, look, I hope he continues to go on and have success. I, I was, you know, I was watching Lewandowski, uh, who at 33, 34, whatever age he is right now, gets his first. Champions League trophy. And, you know, here you got a 19 year old that right out of the chute, everything has gone right. And when I was many, many years ago, uh, I had a, uh, uh, a conversation with with John Harkes. And even though he's only a few years older than me, he still had much more experience. And he point blank told me when I first got to the national team, he said, you know what, if if half of your years are successful as a soccer player, consider yourself lucky. Uh, and certainly don't take anything for granted. And I'm not saying that Alfonso Davies, Davies will, but uh, this is this is some lofty heights at a very very young age. And he's playing at a team that's going to continue to win. And he has established himself, as we said before, as the best left back in the in the world. And I don't think I only think he's going to get better because he's continuing to even on the job, learn the position, that he's able to do that and still be considered the best left back in the world is a testament to how great a talent he, uh, he, actu- he actually is. And by the way, uh, I know this is an aside and I know this is, this is something that just sticks in my craw. His name is Alfonso Davies, okay? <laughs> I, I refuse to believe that Brits cannot pronounce Alfonso Davies, okay? It's not Davis. It's Davies. All right. Uh, all right. I, 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 I digress. But congratulations uh, to him. Just a wonderful year. I can't even imagine what's going on in his head and how much his life has changed and will continue to change because of this crazy path that he has taken and ultimately come out in, uh, as I said, some rarefied air. Uh,
2: a couple of other miscellaneous sure. things. And then I want to say something about Neymar. But um, uh, congratulations to Sevilla. Uh, we don't give the Europa League a lot of love yep. here, but uh, that was a terrific final on Friday. Uh, they defeated Inter 3-2. to two. They win their sixth uh, UEFA Cup slash Europa League title. Uh, also, I read an interview in the last couple of days with UEFA president Alexander Seferin where he left the door open for this bubble uh, scenario to... Uh, come back at some point. He said he actually kind of liked it. There are all sorts of logistical issues with uh, uh, television uh, networks having been promised a certain amount of games. And also, how do you fit this in the calendar? It's actually easier to fit scattered games as opposed to one big block of games that takes you a couple of weeks to play. Uh, But if they were able to get the logistics sorted, are you uh, in favor of this scenario or do you prefer going back to the old way, home and away and Home, home stadiums and such.
1: Look, I, I understand the economics of it. So just from a pure economic standpoint, I understand more games is more money um, and more TV viewers and, and, and all that. However, you know, the one game scenario, and it, in, in this instance, are you saying that it would be a, a bubble scenario or just the higher seed teams hosts the one game?
2: The interview I read made it seem like a bubble scenario.
1: Okay. I mean, cause that's, that's a little different cause it's a neutral type of, of situation regardless if it's a neutral situation or it's the actual higher seed hosting one game, I am still in favor of of one game. I can recognize and appreciate at times the tactical decisions that are made um, and the philosophy relative to two games. And and I do think that some teams are better equipped in a two-legged series than uh, in a one-off game. But I just think to the extent that you can inject as much drama and importance and urgency in a game, you got to do it. And that's what, that's what we saw. I, I don't think it's going to happen, but I certainly would be in favor of it. Yeah. You?
2: I, I'm very intrigued by it. I have to say. Really oh, like yeah.
1: look at you. You, 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 know, you. you make yourself out to be such a traditionalist and an old school <laughs> grumpy guy, and yet you're much more progressive than people feel. You're evolving, my friend.
2: Uh, and then last thing on Neymar, only because I, I don't want to be accused of ducking this. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, bitterly disappointed with his performance. Um, through the first 60, 65 minutes of the game, uh, he, he didn't see a lot of the ball. Uh, mm-hmm. I felt like in the first half, the few times he got it, he actually did some good things. But Bayern did a great job limiting his involvement. And then the really damning part was he became so frustrated that in the last part of that game, he checked out. And when his team needed him most... Uh, He just wasn't there mentally. Uh, You know, a a common criticism of. Neymar in big games is that he develops this hero complex and tries to do too much and dribble past everybody. And I heard people trotting out that line yesterday. And to me, that's not what happened here. It was actually, he was oddly like lackadaisical the last part of that game and was just giving the ball away with these lazy passes. His body language was awful. And so that that is that is very damning and he deserves to get criticized. And because it's Neymar, I know people like to twist the knife even a little bit uh, further than they would somebody else. But uh, I will say to end it on a positive note, uh, it was great to watch a healthy Neymar play games of consequence again, because injuries have robbed him of that the last couple of years. He's been sort of taken out of the mix, taken out of the picture. And I agree with what you said last week. And you reiterated that this week, he was sort of, he sort of reintroduced himself on the global stage again and the last two weeks he felt relevant for the first time in a while and we were again talking about his play and for good and bad and i just hope that we've turned the corner on the whole injury thing and there are no more wasted years in his career and he's able to play and play in all of his team's biggest games for club and country not miss any more international tournaments not any more big uh Champions League knockout stage games, um, you know, because I whether you like him or not, I just think the sport is more interesting with him in the mix.
1: That's a, it's a good final point. I will only say this. If you are only great when you are playing on a better team than the opposition, then I'm not sure you're truly great. And, you know, how many times have we seen Neymar, and look, he's played on some very great teams, uh, in his career, but how many times have we seen him on inferior competition raise the level? And I mean, look, when, I don't know, take your pick out of history, when, uh, when Maradona played in Napoli, for example, okay, it, it, it wasn't that he was playing for the greatest team, and yet he starred and took that team on his shoulder, even for Argentina, when he, when he put it on, on his shoulder. And I think I think big players do that even Messi at times we have talked about the Barcelona team not being as good as it has been in the past and look that's a pretty lofty fight but but still has the ability to do that and I I, I, I love Neymar and I love that he was reintroduced to us and I do think that he can be that great player but like you say I think whether it's a, a physical or, or a mental block that arises in these in these moments I, I want that game where I say you know what Neymar was playing on an inferior team and he took it upon himself in a way to make that team better in that instance. And I I don't get the feeling that we're doing that a lot. And it's hard when you're playing on a, on a super club because those are rare, rare occasions. But the other day, uh, you know, on Sunday, he was playing on an inferior team and he wasn't able to impact the game in a way that he took it upon himself, took his team and elevated that team. And that for me, is what greatness is. All right, Mossy, anything else before we move on? That's it. All right. We're going to take a a real quick break here. and When we come back, we're going to be talking about the uh, U.S. men's national team path to the 22 World Cup. It's a little clearer than it has been in the past after some information came out this past week. Uh, Don't go away. Moving on. Okay, welcome back. Uh, Some news this week regarding the US uh, men's national team and their path back to the promised land of the World Cup, uh, this World Cup being in 2022, the Men's World Cup. Uh, We now have a a much clearer picture about what CONCACAF qualifying is going to look like. And obviously, as things have changed through our pandemic, so has uh, the qualifying process, so much so that there are, it's completely different than it has been in the past. Not to get too bogged down in all the details, Mossy, and please correct me if I'm wrong because there's a lot of stuff out there, but you know, basically what we have right now is from a U.S. perspective, the U.S. is going to sit and wait, and a lot of the CONCACAF minnows are going to fight it out in, in the form of well, a first round, which would be 30 teams, six groups of five, and then uh, all six of the winner, winners of those groups coming out, then fighting it out in the second round, and just a home and away type of series uh, to be one of the top three of those six, and then those three will join the five in that third round, which is where the US is already waiting with, with the likes of Mexico, uh, Costa Rica, Jamaica, and uh, Honduras, if I'm not mistaken. So those are, I think, was it? I think, I, no, Costa Rica, I said Costa Rica, anyway. Uh, the, the gist is that the US is ultimately going to be in this group of eight, the octagonal, the octagon, whatever we're going to call it, uh, formerly known as the hex when it was a group of six, which means that now instead of 10 games home and away, you're going to play 14 games home and, uh, home and away. The way that this shakes out is that, obviously, we know five uh, or four of the opponents being one of the five already in this this third round. We're still waiting for those other three. But the dates are set. And all of this will kick off from a US perspective and for the rest of the, the, the teams uh, starting in June of 2021. So we got, we got a long time. Greg Berhalter and company have a long time to wait before they actually are playing a World Cup qualifier. And with the way things are going right now, folks, I don't know when Greg Burhalter is actually going to be playing a game with the national team, best you know, uh, best laid plans and all. But the reality is that while it seems a long time, what it also means is by the time we get to June 2021 and qualifying starts, Greg Burhalter and this team will I guess have very, have had very few, if any, opportunities to test themselves. So you might jump right into that qualifying process. The good news is, is that for the first five or so games, six or so games, the US should amass points with uh, games against the likes of Jamaica, games against teams that will be coming up, so they will be inferior teams. And then it really gets, I guess, serious from a competitive standpoint in October of next year, 2021, when that first Classico The United States versus Mexico happens. That will be played here in the U.S. We don't know where any of these games are going to be played, uh, including the the classic of U.S. Mexico. We know that for so many years it's been done in Columbus, but that's not assured of happening again in Columbus. All of this is to say that I still think, even with the 14-game format here right now, and maybe even more so because of the 14-game format, I still think the U.S. is going to qualify. I still think that 2017, the the disaster that was 2017 qualifying for 2018 was an aberration. I do think that this team is better than it has been in the previous cycle, uh, more talented. And I do think that they come with a chip on their shoulder and a, a recognition of the responsibility and more importantly, the opportunity to set things right and to make up for past failures and to be that group that takes us
2: back to where we belong. All right, have I framed that correctly, Moss? Have I missed out anything key? No, you didn't leave anything out. Yes, you framed it correctly. And on the topic of setting things right, if you wanna speculate here on who some of the uh, opponents might be to fill in those blanks in the schedule, the US begins, uh, qualifying away to right now it says group a slash f winner and there is a very good chance that team will be trinidad and tobago oh. which you talk about some wow. uh, poetic justice the u.s beginning their next uh qualifying campaign away to tnt and then that second game right now it says versus group b slash e winner uh my money is on that team being canada uh, which uh, would be very tasty. Second game as well, home to Canada. Uh, the other blank you'd have to fill is against uh, Group C slash D winner. Uh, my money would be on Panama being that team. Although another option is a Curacao side now managed by our former Fox Sports colleague Goose Hitting. Uh, so that would be fun if uh, <laughs> uh, Goose Hitting can somehow oh, get I Curacao. That. To I would uh, love that. But
1: look, but all these teams that you're mentioning are are winnable and three points home away. It doesn't really matter. The U S should be able to get three points, which to my point, the U S should by the one, two, three, four, five, six, seventh game when they do come up against, or even the sixth game versus Costa Rica, they should have amassed some good points and should have set themselves up to qualify as the more difficult opponents uh, come into play. And look, it's not that you can't beat Costa Rica and Mexico. As a matter of fact, you, you can, and you should expect to, but, uh, there are there will be other easier opponents and starting it off and getting a base of points, I think, is key for how this qualifying round is going to go.
2: Well, and and if you look towards the end of the schedule, uh, two of the last three games are away to Mexico and away to Costa Rica. So uh, it would behoove the U.S. to be in good shape heading into that last stretch. You don't want to go to those games. Needing needing points, needing a win uh, because I mean those are places where wins have been very hard to come by over the years. Um, so yeah, the schedule is kind of set up in a way to 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 gain a lot of points early to give yourself a margin for error because it gets very tough late. And
1: you, know, you mentioned the likes of Curacao or or Canada um, you know, or Panama they're all going to have to take the long route. And as we've said time and time again, the five teams that were put into the third round and will wait for everybody to knock each other off, that was uh, determined by CONCACAF uh, early on at a a date, uh, an earlier date uh, when it came to the rankings and they took the top five and automatically placed them in there. Everything that happens in, in the pandemic era and in certainly in 2020, as we've said time and time again, it's not about being fair. You try to be fair with the recognition that somebody is going to get <laughs> a, a much a much more challenging type of, of, uh, of pathway. So if someone like Canada ultimately does qualify for the World Cup, because keep in mind, while that final eight, the top three go, that fourth place finisher actually goes on and plays playoff games and then the intracontinental uh, playoff So they can, we could still, from a CONCACAF perspective, still have four teams going, but that is a a real long way and a difficult way for a, uh, uh, for a team to go. And there are those that will cry foul and say that this is, this is unfair. And I, I can't disagree with them, but as we say time and time again, this is making the best of a crap situation and trying to do the best that you possibly can. CONCACAF came out very early on in the pandemic and said, "Look, our priority is to make sure that the leagues are functioning." And you know, to different extents, uh, that is happening now. And so I think they could finally concentrate on getting some of these things, uh, these things done. But it's it's not easy, and and these are just dates, and these are this is all just on paper. This could certainly change. Uh, to reiterate, next June, uh, they, the U.S. will play, according to this, four games in June, then two games in September, two games in October, two games in November. So by the end of 2021, they will have completed one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight games, nine, ten games, excuse me, 10 games of the 14 games. Uh, in the octagon, if that's what uh, if that's what we are call, calling it. And so we should have a good idea by the end of next year, if all goes as planned, that's a big if, uh, about where the U.S. stands uh, relative to qualifying for Qatar in 2022. And keep in mind, the uh, the World Cup in 2022 is not in the summer, it's in the fall, which gives everybody a little bit more of a cushion and more time to figure this all out.
2: Yeah, my, my macro view of this whole thing from the U.S. standpoint is, if you're a believer that the U.S. has this uh, really impressive young talent, which I am, I, I, I love this nucleus of Pulisic, Reina, McKinney-Adams, Dest, et cetera, um, it's going to be interesting to see um, how these guys develop over the course of this qualifying campaign because we all have sort of an idea of the quality of the U.S. team now, but come January of 2022, when they're away to Mexico, uh, where will Gio Reyna be in his career? Then, where will Christian Pulisic be? Where will Tyler Adams, Weston Uh, They might have made a leap, and we could mm-hmm. arrive at that game with feeling like the U.S. you know is now like loaded with you know two or three like world class stars, and we we'll, could be feeling very different about the team come early 2022 than what we do now in August of 20. So that is a long time in a player's development. So uh, that's that's you know burhalter rightly so, keeps pointing out. Uh, in every interview, we have a young team, we have a young team, but it might not feel like such a young team when you get to the home stretch of this qualifying campaign, depending on how well these guys develop and
1: look and there are anticipated challenges and problems along the way and and some i mean look we I know these are blackout dates, but we all know how players can be coerced and and you know I hope everybody First off, I hope all the players recognize the opportunity and the responsibility that they have and want to get on a plane and fly to wherever, wherever it is. But in these days, they can be forgiven at times from having second thoughts. And certainly there's always the pressure when it comes to uh, the clubs that they are at. And some of them are very, very big clubs and some of them are vying for position. All of those different things come into play. And that's where guys like Ernie Stewart, guys like uh, Brian McBride, and guys like uh, Greg Burhall, to the coach those relationships and maintaining those relationships with not just the players but the clubs and and the representation of these players and making sure that those are healthy and that those are positive so you have all guns blazing when these uh, when these games come up and once again there's not going to be a lot of time for Greg Berhalter and that's why this I have this constant question uh, to Greg Berhalter about if and how he has changed his philosophy from when it started because of the pandemic. And in normal circumstances, you have very little time. And now you have even less time with this this team. And if he does get more pragmatic, because let's be honest, nobody cares how the U.S. qualifies for the next World Cup. They just care that we qualify. Nobody cares how we play in the next World Cup. They just care that we do well in the World Cup. Now, I'm not saying that how you play and style play and philosophy, all, all that kind of stuff, isn't important. But when it comes to the national team and the World Cup, that's, that's really all anybody cares. Of. And even more so now when you can be forgiven by being more pragmatic because of the lack of time uh, that you're going to have. Now, I'm not saying that that's what Greg Berhalter is going to do. He, he is and has been a true believer in what he started and maybe what he wants to finish. Uh, and come hell or high water he is going to do that because he believes it's best for this national team either for the moment or for that ramp way up to 2026 i, I don't know but ultimately greg berhalter is not going to be judged on how he plays he's going to be judged on if he qualifies this team and then if he does well uh, in a world cup and like i said i i am bullish about this team qualifying and doing well for a number of the reasons including many of which uh, you uh, Uh, You referenced there the amount of players that are playing, where they are playing, how they are playing, not just internationally uh, and uh, in Europe and other places, uh, but also the domestic talent uh, that we have. I think Greg Berhalter, more so than any coach in history, is going to have at his disposal the most talented and experienced, evolved and mature group of American soccer players that's ever been that's ever been assembled, and that's that's it. That doesn't mean that they win. It doesn't even necessarily mean that they play well. But he, I don't think that he can fault the pool that he has to choose from.
2: No, I agree. And last thing for me, uh, I, I I think the most interesting development in CONCACAF is the emergence of Canada, and I really hope they come out of these first two rounds and they're in this octagonal because. Uh, other than Mexico, those to me would be the most interesting games, home and away against Canada, Alfonso Davies and company. Uh, I think even they've even overtaken Costa Rica in that regard as, as potentially that second juiciest opponent for the US and CONCACAF. Do you agree? Uh,
1: I agree. I agree. And, and while the American in me wants to crush them, I want Canada. I've said this before. I, I want Canada to be more relevant when it comes to CONCACAF. I want Canada to be at a World Cup. I I remember watching Canada in 1986 in the World Cup uh, because my U.S. team had not been in my lifetime to a World Cup, and being proud of Canada simply because of our proximity. I lived in Michigan, and obviously we had a lot of Canadian connections, but. But still watching Canada, and that was the closest that I had ever seen an American team in a World Cup, and there was a pride, and and I, I want I want them back, not at the expense of the U.S., but I want them to be part of that that, that group, and I think it would help. You know we're so connected now in North America and what we're doing in 2026 and Major League Soccer over the years that it would it would help not just Canadian soccer but it would help North American soccer uh, to have that. But we can't will it into existence. Although you know this is this is a good this is a good Canadian team. So best case scenario is both the U.S. and Canada and Mexico for that matter qualify for the next uh, for the next World Cup. All right. Anything else on this uh, this this latest scheduling stuff? And like we said, this is all subject to change. But this is the the best case type of, uh, scenario. And hopefully fingers crossed, knock on wood, all that kind of stuff. This gets, th- this gets done. And by this time next year, all right, so we're at, we're in August of 2020. By this time next year, we will be approaching those September games. We will already have played one, two, three, four games. Uh, and then at the beginning of September, uh, we will uh, play a couple more. So 2021, 2021 is shaping up to be a jam-packed year because you'll have Gold Cup and potential Olympics and all sorts of things in there that will uh, will, will take plenty of our attention and, and give us plenty to talk about. Anything else, Mossy, from uh, this perspective? That's it. All right, moving on. Uh, we're going to come back in a couple minutes here. We'll take a quick break, and when we get back, oh yeah, it's Ask Alexi. You sent us in your questions, and uh, Mossy's going to pick a few out and uh, and read them off. So don't go away. Moving on. All right, it's that time again. Time for Ask Alexi. Use that hashtag Ask Alexi, or you can send Ask Mossy. Just get it to us somehow on all the uh, social media platforms out there, and ask us questions or comments, hot takes, whatever you want. And uh, we'll pick a few out each week as we have done this week. Mossy, what do the folks want to know or or scream about this week?
2: First up, at Roma underscore 0921 Peru. Boy, Ooh, interesting. Wow. Uh, have you seen enough to tell who can win the MLS Cup? Uh, top two, perhaps? All right. So in, in what is
1: already a crazy year, and, you know, we've already seen <laughs> just this past weekend uh, – the nuttiness that is uh mls inside or outside of the bubble, a bubble for that matter and you got a team like orlando that everyone said was uh using the bubble to finally have their coming out party and they were going to kick on and immediately they go and they lose not just lose but lose to their interstate rivals in miami and give miami their first ever win in franchise history uh so it didn't, the magic of the bubble didn't translate, at least in that game. Then you got El Trafico and you got the Los Angeles Galaxy, who had, also hadn't won a game in 2020, going into LAFC, arguably uh, the, the best team in Major League Soccer, and not only winning, but winning comfortably uh, to nothing. So everything is topsy-turvy. Everything is up and down when it comes to MLS. Right now, if you just look at it from a pure standings perspective, you got the Columbus crew in the Eastern Conference. Uh, leading uh, right behind them is uh, Toronto FC. If you look at the Western Conference, you got Sporting KC uh, at the uh, at the top of the Western Conference with Seattle Sounders after they got that win last night in Portland against Portland. By the way, Portland, the winners of MLS's back bubble tournament down there, so another topsy turvy type of result. Of those two teams, look, I think Columbus right now really understands what they are, uh, and I think are very very confident. Um, and they're, I think they're very also excited about, you know, off the field with what's going on with the crew, with the new stadium, with new ownership, all that kind of stuff. I think that boys, they're spirits. And then you combine it with a, a very, very good team uh, and, and a smart and uh, as I said, very organized type of approach to what they are and what, and what they are. So I could definitely see Columbus crew cruising through and winning MLS cup. Uh, Toronto FC, uh, the whole Canadian thing right now with they're only able to play against Canadian teams, it's a very strange situation, but Toronto, it doesn't matter who they're playing against Uh, with the experience that they have. Absolutely. Atlanta United that we always talk about, look, Pitti Martinez looked like a reborn player. In, uh, in their two nothing dismantling of Nashville and his two his two goals, is it because there's the coach was fired in uh, in Frank DeBoer? I don't know. They're always going to be around. Okay, so then uh, you go to the Western Conference. Sporting, I'm not buying. Seattle, I am just because I think of of their history and of their of their quality. Uh, I'm not buying the Loons up there in Minnesota. I love them, but I'm still not uh, I'm not buying them. And then. Lafc, I mean, they're sitting in fifth place right now, but if they get Carlos Vela back and he was rusty, uh, and and Diego Rossi was not good either, and Carlos Vela left the game with uh, with an injury, yeah, they can they can. I'm not going to say they're going to win it because I think they are the type of team that does incredible things, and then in that moment something something goes wrong. I don't know how you get over over that hump, but they're still going to be one of the one of the big teams. So look. Uh, if you wanted the two teams, I would say I'd actually say both of them from the East Coast, the Eastern Conference in Columbus and Toronto. So there's there's your answer. Mossy, anything stick out to you when it comes to the uh, the craziness of MLS over the?
2: Uh, the yeah, you past kind weekend? of hit on a lot of my points. I'm high in Columbus, too. What a goal by Darlington Nagby. Oh, my God. That uh, oh went over God. Chicago. And what a big win for Guillermo barros oh. uh, Hats off to him. He had a really nice game plan. Uh, they really disrupted LAFC's rhythm and and didn't let him play as easily as they did in the MLS's back tournament. And then he he created a, a platform there for Pavon to really shine. I thought he was terrific. Uh uh, Araujo was very good in that game too, with two assists. That the back line held up pretty well. They get Jonathan DeSantos Santos back on the field, so some of those dark clouds lifted a little bit for the Galaxy. And all of a sudden, you could see the makings of a decent team there. They
1: and they they celebrated in in, in a way that showed that that it's not the pressure isn't off, but it it was alleviated a little. I mean, look, Gamma Barcelotti, If they had gone in there and gotten hammered, I, I would I, it would not have surprised me if he was gone. Uh, this is a team, as you said, that has not been good this year. They were good. They deserved it. To a man, they were better. Uh, the <laughs> this opinion that the the heat was responsible for it. Yeah, it was hot, and yeah, it was a, a uh, mid afternoon game. But it certainly didn't uh, bother the Los Angeles Galaxy. They had no pro- they had no problem. And afterwards, they celebrated. They might have celebrated a, a bit too much. Uh, Slow your roll and all all that kind of stuff. But you could tell that this was something that was important to them and that they had felt the pressure and the critique and criticism that was coming for what has been oftentimes called, including, uh, I've called them, a very mediocre, mediocre team, but they were anything but mediocre against, uh, LAFC, uh, LAFC the other day.
2: Um, and one team actually didn't hit on that we should discuss sure. is NYCFC. They lose to the Red Bulls. Uh, you know, we, we focus so much on Atlanta and the Galaxy's woes, uh, this season, but, but that's a, that's a club very much in crisis. Ronnie Dela off to a rough start there. Uh, what do you make of that situation? I can't explain it.
1: I, 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 I cannot explain it. It's not for lack of talent. Uh, it's not for lack of identity. it's just I, I, I wish I could explain it. I, I thought that, that they were going to be well, I thought that they were going to be more successful. Did I think that they were going to be better? Yes, but I I, I don't know. I wish I could put my I wish I could put my finger on it and maybe it's just this. Uh, this crazy year but once again you got to be able you got to be able to adjust uh, and you got to be able to adapt now look i think that there are some more twists and turns that are coming when it comes to uh, to major league soccer and this return to play in the regular season in in markets and look even in normal times major league soccer is incredibly difficult to predict and its unpredictability is something that endears me to it i love the fact that it is topsy-turvy. And there's so much that can go on. And, you know, if I ever find that person that is able to accurately and consistently predict MLS, I win a lot of money. <laughs> All right, Masi, what else? Uh,
2: at SEC 103J thoughts on Rose Lavelle heading to Manchester city and what it means for NWSL and the U S women's national team. When top American women's players goes over, go overseas. Uh, Sam Mewis uh, also made a similar jump going to Manchester City recently.
1: Yeah, so first off, a couple of things that should be noted here. Okay, so we're in, we're in 2020. Uh, we had the NWSL bubble that happened. They are still, by all accounts, trying to figure out some sort of continuation of play in 2020, but nothing has been formally announced, and who knows if, if it will be. I think it's important to to understand that in 2020, um, the U.S. women's players that are that are signed with United States Soccer Federation continue to be paid, even though they are not playing. They are being paid their salary as U.S. women's national team players, and they are being paid their salary and guaranteed to be paid these salaries of for their NWSL participation, even if they opt out and choose not to participate. Okay? Uh, so, and this is because of, ironically, the contract that they agreed to and the CBA that they agreed to. And it guarantees the, them this, it affords them this type of, of security. Part of that CBA is a recognition when it was first signed that you wanted to assure that players were going to stay. And so there was a limit as to the number of players that could be allowed to play outside, um, which was, which is three. Now, 2020 is obviously a very strange year. And I think from a U.S. And why I'm talking about the USSF is because that's who is paying most of these, uh, most of these players. If you're a player in the NWSL and you want to go overseas and and you're just a regular NWSL player that's being paid by that, by the league, You know that's fine, and we'll talk about that in a second. But we're talking about these players that are under contract with USSF, the United States Soccer Federation, who is also paying their NWSL salaries, and they're all getting paid even though they're not playing. Whether they're not playing NWSL, they're not playing with the. They're certainly not playing with the U.S. national team. So three players are allowed. But in 2020, you want your players playing, and the reality is, in 2020, especially in the United States, it's very difficult. And if you're a professional, you want to play. And you want to get to a place to your place. So I think there will be a recognition from USSF that they will allow players to go and do that. For a number of players, it's going to be with the recognition that this is a temporary type of fix and that they will return and that they will be back. Now, is this this a bad thing in the bigger picture for NWSL? I don't think it's, I think it's a challenge and I think it is worthy of their attention. But I think what what it can do and what it should do is reinforce the fact that they better protect themselves. And when I say protect themselves, recognize that the rest of the world is catching up the rest of the world already has existing infrastructure when it comes to opportunities uh and affiliations with some very very big clubs so it is very turnkey so when you go to manchester united you go to man city or you go uh, places in uh in france and other places you're stepping into an already established system and an already established resources you got to be able to compete and if you're nwso and you want to call yourself the best league in the world you better be able to compete from a financial perspective, from a resource perspective, from a prestige perspective. And this hopefully will continue to remind MWSL uh, and light a fire to be able to be competitive. And this is, this is the market that you live in. And so I don't think that this is a bad thing. As a matter of fact, I think it's a necessary thing um, and something that I think will, will drive what NWSL is going to do from a business perspective and a future perspective, to make sure that they are creating a league that can compete on and off the field and provides opportunities for their players where they want to be here and they don't have to go overseas. And whether it's the actual money that they are making or the facilities that they are exposed to um, or just the love that they are getting from, uh, from these markets. So all of that is to say that while it can be seen as an exodus and therefore a a problem, I think a lot of it is just the times that we are living in. And I think if all things are equal, and they're not always equal, but if they are all equal, I think more often than not, American uh, women's players, uh, whether they're with the national team or not, are going to opt for the opportunity to play at home, but you gotta make it competitive and you gotta be able to pay them. And the grass isn't always greener over there, but, at times it can be pretty green and if if only for the experience. So uh, it's a good question. I I would not be running around saying the sky is falling, but this should be a reminder uh, to the NWSL that you better have your ducks in order and you better be able to compete and you better step up when it comes to ownership uh, because Europe continues to come and they will they will continue to look at the talent that we have, whether it's domestic American talent or just talent that is playing in the NBO cell that might be international to pick those off. And you can very easily lose that, uh, you know, that distance that you have created over the years um, and very quickly lose that distance. All right. What
2: else? Uh, Well, very quickly on the topic of European women's soccer, we should mention the uh, women's champions league is taking place right now. We're in the semifinal stage uh, we're taping this on a Monday, uh, Tuesday, the day this podcast drops. Wolfsburg, Barcelona, and then Wednesday, an all-French semifinal, PSG, Lyon. Remember in women's soccer, Lyon are the, the the big powerhouse. They've won this competition the last four seasons. They're going for five in a row. And then the final is Sunday, August thirtieth. Okay, all right. And lastly, uh, at Monzone fourteen. Uh, this was a question uh, you requested of Alex. Dowd on the rundown: uh, Will the MLS squad versus Euro squad for the U.S. Men's National Team cause confusion? I must confess, I'm a little confused by the question. What, what exactly well, is this? What uh, I think,
1: what I think he's saying, and the reason why I wanted to talk about it is that, you know, over the years, the uh, the, the the groups or the, the, the separation and the sides of players that are playing domestically, uh, for the most part in Major League Soccer, almost entirely in, in Major League Soccer, and then players that are playing uh, overseas, and for the most part um, over in, uh, in Europe at some very, very big clubs. And these two camps have to come together. And dynamics of a team are so important. And I, you know I can remember, because I've been on both sides of it. I have returned to the national team from playing, uh, at the time I was playing in Italy, and I've gone returned to the national team at a time when I was playing in Major League Soccer. And, you know, the, I, I talk a lot about the insecurity that we have. Um, and we have had and we continue to have. And there's, there's nothing we can do about it except own it and, re- and recognize it. But I, I vividly remember at one point, when I had come back to the national team uh, and I was playing in major league soccer at the time. And I remember having a shouting match at one point with Steve Sampson because of the way that he had been talking about the domestic players versus the, uh, let's call them for lack of a better word, the, the international players. And I thought that it was condescending and I let I let him know. Now, once again, that was maybe my insecurity and my sensitivity to this, but th- you have to find a way to have a player that is playing in Europe, and the way that affects you thinking that, it's not thinking that you, you, your you, you're, you know what doesn't stink, it's that you're playing over in Europe and everybody is telling you that this is a, a higher level and that you have done something special and, that, and therefore you equate that with being better and therefore, you should be seen as such, trying to get over that. And at times, that, that condescending type of inferior look that you get from playing in, uh, in Major League Soccer. So, for example, and I'm not saying that this happens, but you've got a Jordan Morris up there in Seattle. He comes into the national team. He spent his entire career in MLS. And you have, you know, I don't know, a, a Weston McKinney who has never played in MLS, and has played in the Bundesliga, who knows, potentially could be at the EPL this year, whatever, they come into the national team. And I'm just using them as examples, I'm not saying that this happens, but the way that they act, the way that they behave, the way that they interact, can have a dramatic effect on how you actually play, and how that camp goes. And if there is any type of perceived condescension, from either way, a resentment, one way or the other, that can manifest on the field. And so you got to be able to nip that in the butt immediately. you got to be able to suss it out and recognize it. And I think it, ultimately it comes from the top. And that's why I mentioned that Steve Sampson's, uh, Sampson story. It was just a, a, a one-time thing. But I wanted to make sure that he understood that the way that he interacted with the players and the different groups um, mattered. And, it, and we were listening to the words that he used and the way that he, that he talked. And as I said, I, I, I hold up my hand and say, maybe we were overly overly sensitive, or maybe I was overly sensitive to it. But I think it starts from the top. And I think you got a guy in Greg Berhalter who has had incredible experience and I think will recognize that the things that he says and how he treats the players and those groups that inevitably are going to form are, are key. Because if you got a player coming in from Europe, as I said, that just thinks that, you know, I live in a totally different world. And you guys don't understand what it means to be uh, a a true pro and play in a in a soccer culture. You know, that's that that is a recipe for for disaster. And in the same way that if you have a player who's playing domestically and MLS comes in and you know resents these other players or uh, or is constantly having a a negative reaction to those other players, that, that can be problematic. You know that can be problematic too. So you know, that, I know that's that's a long way of saying it, but that's what I was thinking when he was asking this uh, this question. So that dynamic, look, that dynamic is so key right now because of these two groups that we have that we have to meld together. That in and of itself is what is going to make this team successful. Because as much as we talk about the Gio Reynas and the uh, Tyler Adams and Christian Pulisic and Weston McKinney's and and others that are out there that are going to populate this team, it's not all going to be from players playing in Europe. You're going to need those players from, from MLS. And if there is this headbutting, if there is this dynamic where they're not, there's not a mutual respect between those two groups. As I said, that, that can lead to real, real problems down the line. And you got to be able to recognize it, as I say, and deal with it uh, initially. And that's why I, I wanted to include that because I think it's, I think it's a conversation worth having having, and I think it's only going to become more in, important for Greg Berholt or whoever is the coach of, uh, of that national team going through. Anything else, Masi?
2: Oh, let me just say, I'm, I'm guilty sometimes of when I talk about what a bright future the U.S. has, only rattling off the European-based players, the Pulisic, Arena's McKinney, Adam, Dess et cetera, and leaving Jordan Morris out. And uh, Jordan Morris absolutely belongs in that conversation. I mean, he, he goes up in my estimation, every time I watch him. In fact, I I forgot to mention this during the MLS discussion, but he had a play in the first half of that Portland-Seattle game where I think it was... Lodero chipped it to him in the box and he did this absolutely lovely flick to Rui Diaz. I don't mm-hmm. know if you remember the player yep, I'm talking yep, about, yep. which if that's like Gio Reyna in a European game, like the, the Twitter would have exploded. People's heads would have exploded, but it, it got kind of lost because I don't know it's an MLS game. So who cares? But I, I'm sorry. That was <laughs> an incredible display of skill from a player who, like I said, every time I watch him now, he, he shows me that th- there's more in his locker than I realize. And he, he does things that I'm like, Oh wow. I didn't he had that enough skill to kind of do that in that situation and and just his soccer IQ. So he, he really is a terrific, terrific player.
1: And look, if he never plays a game over for a European club and stays his entire career in Major League Soccer or stays his entire career for Seattle, he hasn't let anybody down. He certainly hasn't let himself down. He hasn't unfulfilled some sort of destiny that American soccer folks believe that is his responsibility to uh, to fill. And he could be a star in a World Cup uh, as much so as a Christian Pulisic or, or, or anybody else. But if he comes into camp and he feels that that group is looking down on him or treating him differently, and once again, I'm not saying any of this is happening, but that's what you have to guard, guard against. And this... This inner tribal tribalism, basically, uh, that can be the death of uh, the death of a team. All right, Mossy, anything else when it comes to Ask Alexi?
2: Uh no, nothing on Ask Alexi, but my my last uh thing on this podcast is uh, I've just received a text from a buddy letting me know that uh Tiago Silva is headed to Chelsea on a two-year deal. Uh if you know Alex Dowd still was willing to participate in this podcast. I'd be curious to get his thoughts on that. But uh, you know, it really—it's been a roller coaster ride for me and him because William has left, so I thought we'd have nothing to bond over anymore. But now Tiago Silva coming in, we have that. So uh, you know, uh, Chelsea's but-
1: looking good. I mean, God, the the, <laughs> the signings that they are that they are having. I mean, it's at least on paper. It's going to be fun to watch. All right, Mossy. Well, we know that Alex Dowd is, is not going to uh, grace us with his presence. We really got to, you know, kind of pull him out of his shell, and that's 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 our challenge for the uh, the future. But look, these leagues are coming fast and furious. There is no rest for anybody. Basically, 2020 is uh, is nuts. Uh, but one thing that we do know is consistent is the Ask Alexi segment. So thank you for everybody for sending us those. Uh, those questions keep them coming use that hashtag ask Alexi out there on all the social media platforms and we will pick them each and every week uh, and they keep getting better and better and better and thank you so much uh for those all right we're gonna take one more break here and when we come back I'm gonna give you my uh, one for the road don't go away moving on all right we're back uh and at the end of each and every Podcast, as you know, I give you my uh, one for the road, and uh, we were talking about how the uh, the leagues are going to be coming back uh, before we know it, and some are already already back. And uh, for those of you that are out there that have uh, have kids like uh, like I do, uh, speaking of of coming back, school is upon us. It may already have started for you out there. Uh, for me, it starts here within the next week. And what? What normally is a time of great excitement and anticipation certainly is it has been changed, and my uh, my my thoughts uh, and my heart <laughs> uh, and my prayers to a certain extent go out to everybody out there that is about to embark on this uh, on this latest uh, form of education. Uh, if you are like me and the vast majority out there, you are about to embark again on a uh, semester uh, ahead of us of uh, online type of learning and uh, Zoom calls and a very, very different and strange type of uh, of schooling. Like, there's nothing we can do about it. I tell my kids all the time, uh, I wish that I could tell you when this is going to end. I can't. Uh, I wish that I could tell you about an experience that I had in the past <laughs> and what I learned from it uh, that is... Uh, relatable when it comes to what we're going through now and I can't and so we're all going to have to muddle through this together and so I wish uh, you all well to the uh there are some kids that listen to this pod if you are embarking on this uh you know recognize that everybody is doing this together and I know it sucks and I do hope that sooner rather than later we will will be uh, through this you will all as a generation have an incredible story to tell as I've said time and time again and uh, your ability to make the best of it um, is going to dictate some of your future success. And so there is that opportunity. And I was talking a few weeks ago about some of the Zoom calls that I've had with uh, teams and with players out there. And it applies to, to everybody. This is, in a strange way, but in a very real way, you know, this, this opportunity and it requires flexibility. I've talked a lot about that on this podcast, flexibility and the ability to adapt and to adopt to a whole new uh, normal. And you might not like it, as a matter of fact, very few of us would like it, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't present uh, an opportunity and an opportunity to learn, an opportunity to learn things that we haven't learned before uh, and an opportunity to emerge, maybe better. And so whether it's kicking a ball uh, because you have the time, and you have the opportunity to work just on your left foot, uh, or whether it's bearing down when it comes to school in this type of form, in a way that you haven't been able to do in the past, uh, we're all going to emerge from this, and we will all have hopefully grown, and in certain ways maybe even become, uh, become better. But it also doesn't mean that we don't have uh, our moments of, uh, of downtime and, and being down. And it's, it's okay. Because, you know, as I've said before, this is unlike anything that any of us have ever experienced, uh, experienced before. So to all the kids out there have as good as a fall, 2020 semester, as you can have, uh, I wish you luck, uh, be creative, uh, be yourself, uh, and, uh, and still try to do the work. And I know it's not easy. I know it's difficult. And to all the parents, uh, where, uh, you know, this type of a new normal is providing challenges that we never thought that we would have. And some very, very real challenges when it comes to schooling and parenting and being a family in this type of environment. Um, I wish you well. <laughs> and if, uh, if I had the answers, I would give them to you. As I said before, we're just going to all muddle through this uh, this together, Mossy. You don't have to worry uh, uh, about that yet. But and hopefully by the time that uh, that you do, we will be long past this. But hopefully we will we will have learned uh, learned something. But you got a whole lot of kids that are going back to school. You got a whole lot of soccer players that are going back to school. Unfortunately, without that component of soccer, I know there's a little bit of soccer being played from a youth perspective out there, but certainly nothing the likes of which. Uh, we consider, uh, we consider normal. And, you know, hopefully this is as temporary as it has to be in order to, to get us out there and that we are back not only kicking the ball, but we are also back out there going to school in a normal sense and having those type of uh, relationships and human interaction that uh, makes school uh, so important and such an important part of, uh, of childhood and a part of, uh, of life. Anything else, Mossy, before we head out?
2: No, you know, I, I hope to have kids uh, going off to school, but I have to get a date first. So <laughs> one step at a time. All right. Well, you know, look, it,
1: will you, will you, will you settle in this kind of in this day and age for a Zoom date? Is that, is that okay? How how's your Zoom game when it comes to uh, interacting with? Uh, uh, you
2: tell me. You interact with me. on Zoom. Ah, you're, more than you're any good. Other human Listen, is.
1: there there is there is somebody out there that would be incredibly lucky to have a David Mossy in their life. <laughs> in their life, I am incredibly lucky. We are incredibly lucky to have a David Mossy uh, in, in our life. We're also incredibly lucky to have everybody that uh, listens to this pod. Thank you so much for each and every week tuning in and listening and watching, and downloading and subscribing and rating and doing those things on uh, on all the different platforms out there wherever you do get your uh podcasts it means a tremendous amount to us and uh we're going to continue to do so so uh we w- anything else mossy you're good That's it. all right we will see you again and talk to you again next week on the state of the union podcast but until then size the day